Fruit Bowl is funded in part by our patrons. Thanks to our latest patron, Nathaniel R. Learn more about becoming a patron at patreon.com slash fruitbowlpodcast. She complained to the boss, and what she said was, Dave is running around telling everyone he's gay. Masculine tops. Power bottoms. Butch girls. Femboys. Bears. Otters. Unicorns. There is no shortage of labels that queer people use to describe different sexual identities and preferences. But how do we navigate that horny, thorny path between realizing we're queer and deciding which boxes to check when filling out our dating profiles? Fruit Bowl explores the unique ways we develop our sexual identities by sharing the sometimes messy, always fascinating, real-life sex histories of queer people. Our first introduction to sex. The embarrassing moments we'd like to forget. And the reliable bedroom moves that we've discovered along the way. Basically, all the stuff we wish we'd known when we first came out. Interviews are edited for clarity and brevity and are approved by each interviewee before being released. Thanks for listening. Let's begin. Welcome to Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. I'm your host and the creator of Fruit Bowl, Dave Quantic. And with me today is my very special guest and my co-host for this season two look back, uh, Dave White. Welcome, Dave. Howdy. <laughs> wow, just said like a true Texan or, or somebody who formerly lived in Texas. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on your dirty, dirty show. <laughs> um, I was trying to, before this, sort of think about our history and how I could describe how we know each other. And we have a lot of uh, things in common and a lot of people in common. Um, yeah. You were somebody I met when I lived in L.A. Yeah. But we also have a more interesting history in that the first time I met you was when I made a short documentary about gay men who love Oprah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I used to watch Oprah. I used to watch Oprah every day. Yeah. And yell at the TV half the time. Um, uh, so it's funny because when I wound up in this short film about people who love Oprah, I was like, well, I don't know if love is the right word, but paying attention to a lot is absolutely accurate. Right. And uh, you know, now that she doesn't have a show anymore, I don't, really know what the hell she's doing so <laughs> well i should also say that you and your husband are professional critics yes and that is what is the the kind of focus of linoleum knife which is your podcast yeah that's our podcast we've been doing for almost 10 years we are both film critics which is weird because usually well i mean there are like under a thousand people in the united states who <laughs> make a living being film critics. I think it might even be under 500 at this point. Yeah. So statistically speaking, this job doesn't even exist. <laughs> and so the fact that not only is there one film critic in our home, but two, and that we're married to each other is freakish and, and unusual. Uh, but that's, <laughs> that's the case. And, uh, uh, as journalism has become extremely wobbly in the past uh, 10 to 15 years, mm -hmm. we decided uh, 10 years ago to start a podcast uh, so that nobody could fire us right. from something that we owned. You've also branched into other things other than just movies as well, right? Yeah, well, when we when we started uh, the show, we just, you know, were 
doing it, you know, for our own pleasure, really. Uh, And we did that for five years until around 2015 when a friend said, I need to tell you guys about Patreon and how you can make some money from what you've been doing. And by that point, we had built up, you know, this small but loyal audience. And um, and a lot of people decided they wanted to follow us to Patreon. And because Patreon is about people getting extra stuff for their, you know, uh, their monthly subscription dollars, we started giving them extra stuff. We do, how many, we do like four other podcasts just for Patreon. Well, and what are those about? Well, one is called Linoleum Knife Presents More Linoleum Knife, where we take one old movie and watch it and talk about that one old movie. Uh, Then there's one that is about television. It's called LKTV. And after starting LKTV, a listener said, why don't you just do a show that's all about food? Right. And cooking and baking and stuff. Because that's my other thing. Like, if I didn't have to work... And make money, I would just be in the kitchen baking all day, all day. Yes. And so we 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 thought, oh well, you know, who knows? Maybe someone wants to hear this. So we started a show called Linoleum Knife and Fork. <laughs> um, Perfect. Uh, and then we do uh, a show for the top tier uh, subscribers called Linoleum Nights, uh, which was also a listener suggested. Uh, the same listener who suggested a food show said, "I want you to do." a show where you talk about all the taboo subjects, you know, uh, <laughs> religion, politics, sex, you know, and, or just anything you feel like talking about. Nice. Uh, because Linoleum Knife is a clean podcast that we, we do not use any of the bad uh, swears. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a challenge to ourselves early on. We thought, what if we didn't curse like sailors? All day. Like, what if we took 90 minutes a week and did not swear? <laughs> then someone with a four-year-old that they would like to not have here swears all the time could listen to the podcast in their car. <laughs> well, you can say whatever you want on mine because I have an adult designation. Oh, I know. Oh, please. <laughs> I've listened. I've listened to lots of episodes. I know what you can say on this show. <laughs> <laughs> so don't hold back. I did want to mention that I'm so glad that you do a food uh, version of your show because when I listened to your show the most was when I lived in LA and I was uh, commuting to work and driving around a lot. A lot of people spend time in their cars and uh, I would always really enjoy your intros where you were describing what you were baking and making and, and I, <laughs> I, I, f- I fondly remember your Christmas parties where you feature your famous chili. Oh, and that wasn't even mine. Alonzo makes that. Oh, wow. Okay, that's Alonzo's. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's like one of three things he can make. <laughs> <laughs> what What is your specialty in the kitchen? You're a baker? I'm getting good at cakes. Yeah. Like I'm getting pretty good at cakes. And it's taken me years. Yeah. Because I'm just, I'm a disaster. And, <laughs> you know, and so, but I trial and error, trial and error and paying attention to people who are smarter than me and who know more than I do. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know. And the fact that I'll go and make a couple cakes a week just because we want all that cake in the house. <laughs> so, um, you know, that'll, that, that's the only way you learn how to do something is just keep doing it. 
like sex like this show is about. It's also like podcasting. The more you do it, the better at it you get. Well, we haven't gotten <laughs> any better at podcasting, actually. <laughs> we keep destroying that every week. So, <laughs> But you have a lot of listeners, so I encourage my listeners to check out your show. So I encourage them to do the same thing. And they can find your show on all of the different platforms. I think that's true. <laughs> Alonzo is the one who knows the answers to those technological questions. I can barely turn on a toaster without help, so I don't. Yes, um, the answer is yes. It's available wherever fine podcasts are sold. <laughs> okay. And it's free, so. Awesome. Well, um, I really appreciate you coming on the show today, and we're going to have a really fun time listening to some clips from season two. And uh, let's just go ahead and launch into the first one, um, which is from Isabella who was on episode nine of this season. And right now we're going to listen to her uh, talk a little bit about Texas. Uh, I grew up for the most part in Texas and I identify as a Texan, which like, <laughs> is like, what's, what's your, your like pr preferred pronoun? My preferred pronoun is Texan. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I think of myself as like identifying as like I, that culture really vibed with me and it really shaped me to be who I am. Yeah, so it was a town called Colleen, uh, centrally located in between Austin and San Antonio, um, uh, right outside of this um, military base called Fort Hood. It's so weird because I would not describe it as liberal, but at the same time, it's probably one of the most open places. Like, it's just this weird mix. Because of the fact that it's so close to this army base, you have all these people uh, from all over the country and all over the world. It's a lot of people who are conservative in their values, but not in their actions. <laughs> so when you go to Colleen, it's like um, strip clubs. Um, it's uh, uh, my, my first gay bar. It looked like it was closed from the front facing the, the road, but then they had an entrance around the back, right? It was like for closeted military guys uh, and, and military women. Uh, it was always full, it was always packed. Uh, it was my first time seeing a glory hole. Um, <laughs> it was just a strange, uh, um, uh, interesting dynamic of seeing these really mask butch, um, uh, military dudes that you knew were like, you know, could understand how to like do tanks and armory and stuff like that also dressed as Diana Ross, you know. If you grew up in Texas, which is uh, so huge, has so many different kind of cultures, right? It's hot as hell. Um, uh, it's this place of sort of, which celebrates lawlessness. It's this state which like the whole motto is like, don't mess with us, which is just kind of so aggro <laughs> for no reason. Um, uh, and it's all about like individuality. Um, but you also place this pressure to be um, normal, Christian, Bible uh, obeying uh, and decent. You just know the more pressure you put on yourself at the top, the more it has to sort of funnel down to someplace else where it alleviates itself, you know. It's like it's like how the number one state that consumes the most pornography is Utah. And Texas is like that. It's like you can be as weird as you want to be as long as you close that door. 
much different than here in Seattle. Seattle is, is like the opposite. It's like people are trying to be freaky on Maine here, where actually in real life they are normal, boring people. <laughs> and it's so frustrating. <laughs> you know, like so many people just like make up weird, freaky things about themselves. I'm like, you are boring, honey. You are boring. Just admit that you're a boring, pasty person. It's fine. But in Texas, it's like the opposite, where it's like you'll see people who just look so straight-laced, so normal, and are nasty people, freaks. Uh, <laughs> so it's like it's been a culture shock for me. <laughs> so, Dave, you are – are you from Texas, are, like originally? I'm from all over the place. I was I was born in the Northeast, and then when I was a kid, we moved to uh, – Southeastern New Mexico. I, li- I lived in Roswell. Oh, wow. When I was a child. That was my mom's hometown. My mom's hometown. And then we moved to Texas. Yeah. yeah. So if you ask me where I'm from, I'll say Texas or I'll say Roswell or both. or You know what I mean? It's like when you get bounced around as a kid, you don't know where you're from. And what is your take on Texas? Do you agree with uh, Isabella? Uh, she is absolutely correct <laughs> about <laughs> Texas. Where, where in Texas did you spend most of your time? Uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, and Lubbock. Okay, those three cities. Yeah, um, I went to co- I went to college in Lubbock, and um, lived in Fort Worth for a while. lived in lived in this lived in Dallas for a while. Okay, and um, but everything she's saying is true. Uh, in the nineties, when I came out uh, at work, I had been out personally for a while, but when I came out at work. There was a, a woman, a very difficult woman that I worked with, who, when she found out that I had told, like, two or three other employees that I was gay, she complained to the boss. And what she said was, Dave is running around telling everyone he's gay. <laughs> like you were lying. And I love it when people tell you that you are running around doing something like <laughs> you're frantic, you're wild, you're out of control, you know, you're 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 doing something like scandalous and you're doing it like like a house on fire. Right. And I'm like, there's a reason we ain't friends, you and me. <laughs> but that's the thing. Like she would have been fine if she had secretly known I was gay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then had that information of, oh, you would never know to look at him or, you mm-hmm. know, hang around him. But guess what about him? Yeah. Gay. And this is 1990, whatever the fuck, 93. Okay. And I thought, so that's how this is going to turn out. Yeah. Like, no, I'm sure it's, that's 27 years ago. So... The world is different in Texas now, I'm sure. I haven't lived there in 20 years, but, you know, I'm assuming it's a little different now. Yeah. I'm assuming that people have grown the fuck up about something as mundane as queerness. Mm-hmm. I think Isabella's time there was a while ago as well. And, you know, I was yeah. there from 91 to 95. Um, so what you just described was while I was also in Dallas and and I can definitely identify with that scenario. I think there is a lot of acceptance on a sort of a subtextual level in Texas. Yeah. Like you can do whatever you want as long as you keep it in private, you know, or yeah. you close that door as Isabella says and and it likely is much different now, but there's also still very conservative people there. Oh, I have family there and I can tell you it's it's oh yes. 
(laughs) (laughs) And do you go back to visit them? Uh, We all meet uh, for Thanksgiving sometimes in Albuquerque, where a bunch of other family members live. Okay. So I haven't haven't been back to Texas since my mom passed away, Mm. which is about... Nine, eight, nine years ago now. Yeah, you know, I, I don't often um, go back much. I think the last time I was there was uh, the fall of 2016 to go to a wedding. Yeah. But um, I definitely want to go back and record more interviews there just so that I can get more perspective from people who are still in that environment right. and get some hot takes about what it's like now and also what it was like with people growing up. So that's definitely on my agenda. That'll be good. But um, I also wanted to just mention, you know, sometimes in in the introduction to each of my podcast episodes, I have what I call our cliff notes. And she mentions a glory hole. Yes. And if you had to describe what a glory hole is, how would you describe it? Okay. A glory hole is a thing that's in the student union building on the (laughs) Texas Tech campus. Oh, wow. Lubbock, Texas. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Allegedly, in 1987, <laughs> that's what existed there. <laughs> You've heard stories about it. I've heard about them. Yeah. <laughs> How would you describe what a glory hole is to somebody who doesn't know? Um, weird. <laughs> like, it's, it's a way for closeted guys to have brief point of contact sex and then skulk away. <laughs> right. And... And I know that there are uncloseted people who love them still, like they <laughs> imprinted on them maybe in their younger years when they were, you know, still sorting themselves out or whatever. Right. And that's cool if you're down to keep doing that and you think that's fun, great. Um, but I always thought personally that they were just sort of like, eh, <laughs> this. Right. Why? Why? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, everyone's got their own thing. Right. People are down for it. There's a reason they still exist. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason they exist in, like, sex clubs and stuff. Yeah. You go into one of those, and sometimes they have those. And so, you know, people pay for them now. <laughs> <laughs> or they set them up in their own homes. Or they set them up in their own homes. There's a whole subset of videos on Pornhub. People set them up in their own homes. <laughs> yeah. And from like a coronavirus perspective, it's actually kind of like makes sense. Somehow, I don't think it's going to prevent you from getting the coronavirus, no, though. I know, but there's the illusion that it might. I, I heard recently someone said, "Oh yeah, you should be inventive with sexuality now that the, you know, that we've got COVID nineteen. You should have glory holes." And I'm like, "The fuck are you talking about?" <laughs> but just in case listeners don't know what it is in in its sort of description is that it is literally a hole that is made in what is usually a bathroom stall door or wall. And it's so that one person can stick their junk through a hole and the person on the other side can blow them. That is correct. (laughs) Um, And it would be nice if you would take care to sand it down. (laughs) Right? Yeah. All right, cool. Well, I would also like to go on record and say that Isabella's description and her comparison of gay people in Texas as compared to Seattle is also spot on. Um, Oh, for for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you, I think that's cool, though. Here's why. You leave your little town, right? 
Yeah. Honestly, you get run out of town. I, I don't know <laughs> if it's like that today still, but it used to be. You know, when right-wing people, when anti-queer people say things like, well, they all went off to Los Angeles and New York and San Francisco and, you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, because you motherfuckers pushed us out. Mm -hmm. That's why. Exactly. We had to run away with our lives to go somewhere else. So you get to the big city, Seattle, San Francisco. Chicago, wherever, and you think, I'm free. Yeah. I'm free now. I can be anything I want. And you begin to investigate, you know, perhaps what sort of uh, uh, sexual subsets you might want to participate in. Like, I'm going to get the wording wrong here, but like the puppy people, <laughs> right? Yes. Cool. You want to be a pup? Go do it. You can, you, there's a store. <laughs> <laughs> in your town now you live in a place that's probably got a store and you can buy a doggy mask and wear it and go to the bar and be like i'm a puppy and oh we have a puppy night at this bar so right. all the other people who are down for this can do the same thing now does that mean you're not an insurance you know person as a job? No. It means you do this thing, and then when you're done with your job that is perhaps quite boring, I don't know, you go be freaky. So I think you can be boring and freaky at the same time, and I think that's very beautiful. <laughs> that's true. I think that Isabella's point, though, is that she's suggesting that people who live in Seattle often think that they're more freaky than they actually are. Oh, if you have a lot of self-regard about it, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you're lording it over other people, you know, like, I'm a part of the, you know, this community and we're more evolved than the rest of you and that yeah. kind of thing. And if you're assigning a value to what you have decided to, to participate in, then that's annoying. <laughs> but yeah, no, I get it. But I, I also now just talking about this, realize that that anyone who falls outside of the acceptable sort of everyday persona of 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 a normal sort of person, you're going to stand out more in Texas than you are in Seattle, just by nature of the culture. Oh, yeah. Especially if you're out there running around telling everybody. <laughs> right? This was something that I actually appreciated about being openly gay at Southern Methodist University in Dallas when I was there from yeah. 91 to 95, which is, I actually kind of appreciated going there and being openly gay because I didn't ever have to do anything else other than just say I was gay to be like the most radical, oh, yeah. crazy person those oh, yeah. people have ever met. Yep. Like I didn't have to get a tattoo. I didn't do piercings. Um, I didn't cut my hair weird. I only had to say I was gay and immediately I was like, a complete mm -hmm. radical. <laughs> yeah. So it was kind of handy. I didn't have to like take on any of the other kind of ornaments. It was plenty. <laughs> right. Back then. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to our next clip. And I, again, I chose this one knowing your background in, in movies and, and loving movies. So we're going to listen to Joshua describe one of his favorite pornos that he ever saw. This is Joshua from episode seven of this season. I raided my friend Sam's father's porn collection. And like, oh my God, it was almost like his father had an entire video store in the attic. Hundreds of movies. He bought the stock from a business and he did this with other companies as well. Like at one point he bought a wax museum. His father was sketchy and uh, I mean, he ended up going to prison for um, a long time 
for uh, you know mail order fraud. So we as kids, me and two male junior high friends, we had access to like so much porn and pretty much unchecked. So we did watch it together. Even back then as a young kid, I appreciated kitsch and camp. Uh, I remember there was one that showed on um, cable that we taped that was a sort of uh, sexy, porny version of Cinderella. I need to find this movie because I swear people don't believe me that it exists, but I watched it over and over again and it was less about it being erotic and more about it being amazing. The fairy godmother was played by a black drag queen. When she gave Cinderella her makeover, took her wand and, and hit her crotch and said, I give you a snappin' pussy. And her, you know, vagina made, you know, amazing noises. And so of course she fucked the prince at the ball and it was like the best lay he ever had. So the premise was that he had to go around the kingdom, you know, fucking all these girls until he found the girl with the snapping pussy. But what's amazing about that is there was a scene in it, which I've recreated in multiple projects of mine, where she uses a corn uh, on the cob to masturbate and her pussy is so powerful that it turns the kernels into popcorn that are like shooting out of her crotch. <laughs> now I hope someone finds this movie, tells me what it's called and sends me a copy because I need to see it again. I've not seen it for many, many years. I know what movie this is. Oh, you do? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. We have to tell Joshua. What is it? It's called Cinderella. It's also called, uh, depending on, you know, where you were in 1977, it is also known as The Other Cinderella. <laughs> and the only reason I remember this is because when I was a small child, when we still lived in the Northeast, uh, there was this situation where, this is how I became a, 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 addicted to film. There was a theater, an old one-screen theater in our town, and every Saturday and Sunday they showed children's uh, films, you know, like <laughs> Snoopy Come Home and, and things like that, and um, like the kid matinees. But at night, this theater was a second-run movie theater. Oh my gosh. So if it came from the other big theater in town and was still, still playing after, you know, two months or whatever, it would play at that same movie theater at night. Well... Alternating in the programming at night was, and this is very specific to the 1970s, I'm very old, <laughs> um, the X-rated movie at that time wow. was somewhere in between what we would call an R-rated movie or an NC-17 rated movie and actual pornography. Yeah. And, and of course, as everyone probably knows, the movie Deep Throat was a huge pop culture sensation in the 1970s. And regular movie theaters were showing Deep Throat, which had explicit, penetrative, uh, hardcore sex. But you could buy a ticket to a movie theater and just go see Deep Throat and people would do it. You know, Johnny Carson would make jokes about it late at night on TV. And so in the wake of Deep Throat came all these other X-rated movies and this movie theater <laughs> that showed all the kid matinees on Saturday and Sunday that I would go to. Um, at night they showed either second run films or they showed these X-rated movies. And one of them was this Cinderella. <laughs> wow. So like it was on the marquee Cinderella rated X or, 
even more hilariously, The Erotic Adventures of Pinocchio. Oh, my God. <laughs> which was an X-rated Pinocchio movie. Tagline, <laughs> it's not his nose that grows. <laughs> oh, my so, God. So, yeah, this movie exists. It was directed by an actor, uh, sometime director, uh, a character actor named Michael Pataki. And he was in, like, Rocky Four, Halloween Four, all the fours. He was in Airport 77. Like, he was in stuff. Wow. But he also directed this X-rated Cinderella. Oh, my gosh. Here's your film history for the day. <laughs> That's amazing. I need to connect you and Joshua. Um, <laughs> do, you know, do you know Peaches Christ, Joshua? Uh, we have never met. Okay. Uh, very talented drag performer. Yeah, huge lover of film. I bet you guys would have a lot to talk about. Um, <laughs> might even be an awesome guest for your show. Um, oh, that would be cool. Wow. That's so cool that you've, that you've heard of uh, Cinderella. Um, and, and, you know, Joshua also prides himself in creating movies and, and theater that sort of riffs on different pre-established titles. And so it's amazing that he like, he would have sort of connected to this Cinderella story because I could see him making a similar movie himself someday. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, I was wondering if you could maybe take a stab at defining camp because uh, Joshua definitely, I think, thinks that the Cinderella movie is camp. And I'm wondering, I, I don't, not sure if all of our listeners know how one would define that. How would you define camp? What a can of worms you have just opened. <laughs> I know. It's a hard thing to pin down. It's, one of, it's kind of like porn in that you know it when you see it. It is multivalent at this point in, uh, in popular culture. Yeah. Because in its origins... Camp was a way for queer people to read a cultural product in a way that made sense to them. Yeah. So you would, you know, go see a film and and it struck you for a lot of reasons. You don't rem you maybe you don't even know why, but you know you're a, you're a, you're a, a homosexual and you're and you are a grown-up and it's 1961, all right? <laughs> But for some reason, you and all your other homosexual friends, however many you happen to have, you all connected over these sort of outlandishly larger-than-life performances uh, by Joan Crawford. Right. And you began to think of her as sort of like this, this powerful, otherworldly force. But at the same time, you see those films that she's in in the 40s and 50s, and you think... Well, these are kind of weird and not good and funny as, <laughs> yeah. at the same time, right? Yes. But how are you going to tell straight people the way that you see something? Mm -hmm. You can't really because they don't feel othered by the world. Yes. Right? And so camp was a, a, a way to, to decode heterosexual culture for queer consumption. Yeah. That's a that's a really good de definition, and I think that if I had to try to describe what I'm trying to do with Fruit Bowl is doing exactly that, only with sex. Exactly. Now, the element of comedy in camp is where people get their definitions all you know varying, especially now, mm -hmm. because as queer people mainstream, there's less of a need sometimes. I mean, I think there's still a need, but there's less of a need some most of the time to have that private language yeah. with each other. That's a good point. For example, um, a film that many people 
consider to be a camp film is Valley of the Dolls. Ask my husband about this. He's a, <laughs> he's a Valley of the Dollsologist, all right? <laughs> that was a film that was considered very over-the-top, very outlandish at the time, very ridiculous as well if you were a somewhat sort of sophisticated queer person. At the same time, you loved it because it had things in it that you really adore. You know, big, big performances, big hair, cool outfits, and you knew that you were kind of smarter than the filmmakers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so it became a film that you could laugh at with your friends and at the same time also take it to your heart and accept it on this on the level it was offering itself. Yes. And that's a kind of camp reading as well of a movie like that. That's that's a really good point because I, I say the same thing about Showgirls, um, which I think is also definitely in the camp. Showgirls um, is a masterpiece. Showgirls is an art film. I don't even think of Showgirls as camp. I think Showgirls is is this otherworldly, like, you know, vicious, you know, critique about everything in the United States. But that's a whole other show. Whole other whole other episode. <laughs> I agree. I think as as film people, we might think of it differently than people who watch it just for the over the top feminine portrayal. Yeah. But like, I love what you're saying about watching it for two different reasons simultaneously, because I can watch Showgirls and appreciate its camp portrayal of, of femininity. But then I can also watch it from a filmmaker's perspective and really have a deep appreciation of the craft of it. And yeah. And how beautifully executed the movie is um, in every way. I mean, say what you will about Paul Verhoeven's choice in script writers. He knows what to do with the camera and right. how to cut yep. dance and and uh, action. And I, I love I love that sort of dual viewing. And and I bet that Joshua might say the same thing about you know, the Cinderella movie. I know he would say that about Showgirls because he's actually featured as a talking head in the You Don't Know Me movie that just came out. I watched that a couple weeks ago. It's a very cool documentary. Yeah, that's kind of on my viewing list this weekend. Um, what camp means to so many people now, though, is just something that's over the top. So yeah. people, since the 90s, you'd look at a film like The Adventures of Priscilla, and people will call that a camp film. And, and, and I would counter that and say, well, actually, it's just very colorful. You know? Good point. Um, I've heard people talk about uh, you know, satirical films like But I'm a Cheerleader that a lot of people really love, mm -hmm. and they'll call it camp. And I'll think, no, it's actually just satire. Good point. And I don't argue with anybody about what they decided that camp means, because now suddenly... After all of this time, the popular conception of camp is just that. It's something that's wild, something that's over the top, something that might even be, you know, uh, outlandishly satirical. And that's not how I grew up with an understanding of that word, but I get it. And I'm not, I'm, I'm done fighting about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there you go. At some point, you just have to accept the fact that it means different things to different people. <laughs> you know, words change definitions over time, mm -hmm. and sometimes they develop, they, they get new definitions or additional definitions. Well, thank you for helping us try to learn and wrap our minds around it. I think it could be a whole separate podcast. You're right. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Um, before we listen to this next clip, which is from Stephen, who was in episode 10 of this season, I was wondering if you could maybe tell us who Concrete Blonde is. Uh, they were a band in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, they had a hit on MTV with a song called Joey. Right. I was never a big fan, but I, you know, they were around. They were a thing. They were, yes. you know, college radio as college radio turned into uh, early 90s alternative radio. Yes. They were right then at that moment mm -hmm. as record labels decided, oh, we aren't going to sell Tiffany records anymore. We're going to sell these kinds of records now. Right. And we're going to do that until people are sick of it. And then we'll find something else. And so... Concrete Blonde was a part of that that world at that time. With a very cool lead female vocalist with an awesome voice. Yeah, she was she was great. She was great. And I forget I forget her name and I'm very sorry about that. Sorry to that lady. I can't remember her name. <laughs> I just wanted to see what you would say about them because I know that you you have very diverse tastes in music. And I'm one hundred, so I have I know I know things <laughs> about that happened a long time ago. Yeah. Well, like, I know that you and Joshua would get along famously and just talk about movies all the time, but I also know that you would love Steven just because he has really unique taste in music. But that's just an aside. I want to just listen to his description here of a unique friendship that he uh, developed when he was cruising in New York. And so here we go. This again is Steven from episode 10. I don't know how I heard about Central Park. You know, it's one of those bits of information that somebody just tells you and you just, okay. So I decided to go and check it out one day and I discovered the Rambles. And the Rambles is this big um, area, very wooded, where you, you know, there's lots of twisting trails and lots of bushes and, and these areas where people, guys can go. And there's like a peninsula, actually, this long peninsula where you can go day or night. There would be people there having sex. It was exciting, but it was also a little dangerous because there's also like bird watchers who would come through occasionally because they're looking for birds and actually trying to enjoy nature. I was in Central Park once and it was getting dark. And I'm trying to weigh like, well, will it be good for sex if it's dark or will it be really dangerous? Or, you know, and should I go? And as I'm contemplating this, I see this person coming and I started to sort of, oh, here's somebody I could probably cruise. And the person was noticing me too. And then as he got closer, I realized it was my best friend. And we both had the same reaction, like, oh, it's you. My best friend James and I, we had gone to pretty much all the different cruising spots and sex parties over the years. So we're like, all right, well, at least we have each other now. So we can cruise for like a little bit longer and then we can get out of here before we get killed. One of the reasons we became best friends is because we both like to go cruising a lot. The same club where I met the, the boy that I fell in love with, I met him in that same club, Zone Decay. I had gone to see a band called Concrete Blonde. It was at a venue that was across the street from the old Times building. I went to see them like a Thursday night and then the Friday night I went to Zone Decay and I was for the first time and my eyes hadn't adjusted to the darkness. I was going through the back room and suddenly this arm shot out of the darkness and grabbed mine and was like, hey, weren't you at the Concrete Blonde concert last night? Now, and you know, there was music and stuff going, but this is the back room. And so it was kind of jarring, like, holy shit, like who is this guy? And so I was like, uh, yeah. And uh, he was playing with somebody at the time when he was doing this, and it was a bigger guy. And I don't know how he looked around the guy and saw me, but he, um, he had a thing for black men back then. I ended up on like against the wall next to him while he was, he was playing with this big guy. And so some other guy came along and I started playing with this guy. And all of a sudden, while I'm playing with this guy, that St. James turns and goes, wow, you guys got awfully familiar awfully quickly. And I'm like, who 
the hell is this person? And why does he keep talking to me? Like, so eventually we ended up like being together and he was like walking me around the club and showing, cause I was like, oh, this is my first time. And he was introducing me to people because that's how he is. I ended up, he lived in Hoboken at the time where I ended up going back to his place and we spent the whole weekend together. You know, we watched like TV, we had a little bit of sex. And, and then I think Sunday we came into the city and we went to a gay porn theater together. And it was like the first time we really cruised together. And then, you know, we we talked on the phone and stuff. It became clear to me that we were like meant to be girlfriends rather than boyfriends. I think he kind of wanted a boyfriend at the time. So we would go to all kinds of parties and things together. But the the thing about it was that he was older, that he was a few years older than me. And I was still learning. I was still experimenting. But I remember going to these some of these clubs with him and like the manhole, I remember. And we we got in there and you're supposed to like take your clothes off or whatever. I just remember him taking off all his clothes except for his his boots and just like strutting into the party with just no fear, no, you know. And I was still like, oh, I'll wear my boxer briefs and my T-shirt. I tell him that to this day. Like, I just remember how much bravado you had and it was totally easy and fine for you in those situations. And I think I learned a lot of that from him, like, you know, just being around him. And so it made all the cruising and the sex like... It just made it easier because, first of all, I had somebody to do it with. And second of all, he was so comfortable with it. It didn't make me freak out about it. Even things that we've done, like we have no boundaries anymore because we've known each other for so long. Like I remember we went to um, Bear Invasion in D.C. We had just gotten into the hotel room and I went to take a shower and I heard there was a knock at the door. So he went to answer the door. And when I came out, he was sucking on some guy's dick. And I was like, oh. All right, well, don't mind me, boys. Let me just get my boots. I'm going to put my clothes on and go. Then later that night, we had been to a party where we had been drinking and stuff, and I came back to the room, and this guy that we both know was basically eating his ass on the bed. So, like, I came in the room, and, like, a normal person would have been like, oh, sorry, and, like, walked out. But I was like, you know, this is, this is my girlfriend. So I walked in, I was like, hey, what's up, you know, and I went over <laughs> and sat in the chair and started eating. We had Entenmann's pecan Danish ring, and I started eating that. And I was having a conversation with James while this guy was eating his ass. And at some point I said to, I was like, oh, I hope you don't mind. Like, and they was like, no, no, don't worry about it. I went back to eating James' ass. So we, James and I continued chatting. And at one point James turned and he said, you know what? I bet you'll never, ever eat another Entenmann's Danish ring without thinking of this moment. <laughs> and so it's true. Every now and then on Facebook, I'll, he'll or I will post a picture of an Entenmann's Danish ring on his Facebook <laughs> So that's the nature of our relationship, yeah. One of James's boyfriends actually used to chastise us for that. He was like, you guys have sex like it's pickup basketball. And I was like, you know what? That's pretty accurate because straight men will go to a, a playground and meet a bunch of guys that they've never met before and have a game and maybe even bond and, you know, form some kind of camaraderie. Same way we go and have sex, you know? I mean, it's, it's kind of similar. You know, I just love this example that Stephen gives of the unique friendships that gay men often develop over the years. <laughs> yes. And how friendships can evolve from what might have originated as a potential relationship, but evolved into, you know, a deep friendship where neither person really ever judges the other person. Right. I almost want to make like a short film based on this story. I feel like so often the conversations we have with each other are about the end goal being relationships, you know? And if I had to think back on the relationships that I've had in, in my past, what I think most fondly of 
are not the people I dated, but the people who are still my very good friends, you know, um, and some of whom who I had sex with maybe once or twice, but right. I remember back in, back in, back in Texas in the early nineties, um, a friend of mine, uh, at the time with whom I, you know, occasionally did it. Um, we ran into, uh, a mutual acquaintance and the mutual acquaintance heterosexual, uh, woman said, Oh, how do you two know each other? <laughs> and my first thought was sexually dummy. <laughs> we banged it out. What do you think? And then, <laughs> but, but what kicked in was, well, we met through mutual friends. That was your alibi? <laughs> yeah, because first of all, I don't need to tell you anything. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Right. Like, why, why are you digging around? Mm-hmm. <laughs> why, why? Plus, like, even if we did describe it to you, you probably wouldn't understand. Well, and, and the funny <laughs> thing is that it's it, it, the, there was that look on her face like, I know you're gay, and I know you're gay. <laughs> how do you gays know each other? <laughs> like, how did this come to be? Yeah. And and I could feel in the tone of the question that there was some that, that there was a come on boys, tell me everything. Mm-hmm. And my first and and my thought was, guess what? I'm telling you shit. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to tell you anything. <laughs> yeah. And so that was um that was that was I think one of like the first time that happened. Mhm. And 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 you know, uh uh Nearly 30 years later, uh, I'm still friends with that dude. Yeah. He still lives in Texas. I've lived here 20 whatever years. And, um, you know, that's, you're right. Those, those friendships, uh, can start out that way and then develop into, you know, other, in ways that, that if you, if you had dated them, Mm -hmm. uh, you might never see, you might never see them again. Yes. Good point. Good point. You were at SMU in the early 90s, and I dated a guy who went to SMU in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. I have no idea where he is now. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe somebody, like your friend who you just described, like you had sex once or twice, but the friendship remained. And, and that, yeah. to, to me, is is more lasting and more meaningful. Yeah. I love, I love Stephen's metaphor of the pickup basketball, too. Like... Right. <laughs> there's, there's sometimes with gay men, there's a casualness about sex that can be very appealing and it can be recreational and fun and and maybe you don't ever want to play basketball with those guys anymore maybe you do it every week i don't know and for some people that's the right way to conduct your life and for other people it's not their thing yeah and cool right well let's move on we're going to listen now to jerusha from episode one of this season and she has got some very solid advice for a first date. I would say my best move is to be able to seal it on the first date. Um, you know, I can like, I, I have a really solid game to um, get a girl to go back to my place. Um, that strategy is to come off hellishly interested in what she's got to say. Meanwhile, my hand is like on her leg and kind of just see like how she's doing and like kind of the little like get closer, kind of read it, see what's going on. And then they'll like lean in and then they'll like just like 
I usually go for the kiss on the cheek at first because that's an easy like, yo, that's not what I'm thinking. You know, like that's an easy out where no one feels super violated and then go for the kiss. It takes a while. I don't go super fast. And I try to keep it so that it's like at any point, it's like you kind of know what I'm going for, but also at the same time, like you can easily just be like, no, but we can keep the conversation going kind of thing. Because then, you know, you don't come off as like creeper. And then also like the way I see it is like, if I'm gonna be like putting the effort in on a date, um, means I kind of like the person just as a person anyways, or at least I'm interested in them. So I don't want to like ruin the conversation by like trying to make a overt move until I'm like, yes, time for the overt move. <laughs> yeah, kind of like focusing on them, getting them to talk and like just kind of like see what the banter is like too. kind of like if you can have a really good conversation with someone and keep that like physical spark going, then chances are you're going to probably have pretty solid sex. Um, <laughs> Because at least then you're like interested in each other and you're like kind of feeling each other out and you can kind of, you know, you can kind of gauge how well you can play off of each other in multiple arenas, like the physical like touch and then also just in conversation, you can kind of tell if you can vibe in multiple ways. I usually start with like a pretty like benign joke. I don't usually, especially with girls, like I don't say anything about like, oh, you have good hair or oh, that's a cute shirt or something like that. Like, you know, that's bland. Um, but usually like some kind of joke. I tend to like to go to like more or less queer bars if I'm going on a first date kind of thing because, or like from Tinder or something like that. Um, because then there's inevitably one straight guy who's going to be making a fool of himself and then you can just kind of make a couple of little cracks about him and then it just like you can keep you know you can kind of open up that little like place where it's like oh we can kind of judge but not really and um, like one of my favorite places is go to the double standard um, on Telegraph in Oakland because uh, right across the street is the Burrito Express so my, my goal was always like with, you know, like on Tinder and stuff, it would be like, hey, let's meet at the double standard because they make really good cocktails that are like craft cocktails, has a really nice like bar environment kind of thing. And then if everything is going good, you can be like, hey, you want to go grab a burrito? And if you're down for one, a burrito at like 10 o'clock at night and also um, down for the spontaneity of that, then I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll see you again. <laughs> like, if you're like, no, then I'm like, cool, that's great. I'm going to close out the tab and then I'm going to go get a burrito and go home. <laughs> yeah. And then if you're just like, I don't even want to keep this conversation going, you just walk away and just go get a burrito. I mean, one way or another, you get a delicious burrito and you might get some arm candy as well. <laughs> if there is a way to have a bad Tinder date, it is definitely not with a burrito. <laughs> like, I'm, yeah. It's a good consolation prize. <laughs> this makes me miss California burritos. I'll tell you something. Of all the season, one of my favorite episodes was the one with Jerusha because uh, either way, you get a delicious burrito. <laughs> <laughs> it's my philosophy. <laughs> In life. <laughs> right? Make sure you have a prize whatever, at the end yeah. of whatever it whatever is you're happens, doing. <laughs> get the delicious burrito at some point <laughs> in the evening. I also just love this clip because it's applicable to anyone who's about to go on a potentially disastrous Tinder date right. or a scruff date or a meetup, you know? Like, 
you you have to prepare for the worst, but you know, also be optimistic. Two things about that. Number one, do not go get that delicious burrito and then decide you're going to get down. That's true. <laughs> Secondly, I must confess to being outside of the world of Tinder and mm. Scruff and mm-hmm. Growler and all that because yeah. I'm I'm from the olden times and my very narrow window of dating in the early 90s before meeting the man who would become uh, my 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 life partner, <laughs> you, there was none of that stuff. Like you just had to bump into somebody and be like, "Oh, what's up?" Mm-hmm. Maybe we maybe we could hang out. Like you didn't have the opportunity to do a lot of preliminary footwork. Yeah, with profile pictures and endless chats, and you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So like that. That didn't work that way back then. Right. It was challenging in ways that no longer exist, I think. And, but also the, the advent of the technol, the technological element involved in dating people now makes for challenges that didn't used to exist. That's true. Um, you know, yeah. the presentational aspects of this where you're finally going to meet in person and is that person going to be the person that you've already been talking to? Right. In a substantive way. Or are they going to look like their photo? That's always up for debate. Yeah. Like, I, I've heard so many stories from so many friends who are on the apps who are like, nope, it didn't work. Yeah. Because yeah. this went wrong or that went wrong or they didn't They didn't tell me everything mm-hmm. before. You know, like, we were all making assumptions about each other and hoping things about each other. And then we met. And it all fell to pieces. Well, that is that is a perfect preamble to our next clip, which is an example of an old school hookup from a bar that went totally off the rails in the same way that any hookup these days from the apps can also go off the rails. And that is uh, Nalen's description of an epic hookup fail in Los Angeles. Um, and you actually know Nayland. I know the Nayland. <laughs> <laughs> there is only one Nayland. <laughs> How do you know Nayland? Oh, God. Years and years and years. Like, <laughs> um, Nayland is the one person in this season who I am personal friends with. You actually recommended him to me when I was searching for interviewees in New York City. Oh, okay. I forgot that I, that I did that. But um, early <laughs> in the 90s, as a, as a, a landlocked... Texan who loved contemporary art, I started reading about Nayland. Mm. Um, Nayland was a budding art star, and I became a fan before ever meeting uh, Nayland. And so, um, when I did meet them in the early ni- in the early two thousands, a friend was making a short film which uh, starred Nayland, and Nayland was what was the plot of this thing? Like it was a fifteen minute movie. Nayland was voted like sexiest person alive by People Magazine or something like that. So the equivalent of that, right? Yeah. And so I, I was in the movie, my one and only time in a, in a short narrative film. I was some guy walking through an alley and a news reporter walks up to me and says, how do you feel about this sexiest man alive? And my <laughs> one line was, lady, I would drink his bathwater. <laughs> wow that's quite a compliment and when we met the day that we shot the movie i said i'm a fan of yours uh just fyi and they said 
how do you even know who I am? And I said, I'm an art fag. <laughs> how do you think I know who you are? <laughs> uh, and we became friends, and we've been friends for 17, 18 years now. I love that. I love Nayland Blake so much. <laughs> Nayland is one of a kind. Yeah. I kind of met Nayland as a fan, too. We met while I was participating in a queer comic festival in New York City a few years ago, and a mutual friend of ours introduced us. But I had been following them on Instagram for, for years. So, yes. Their reputation precedes them. Do you recall the name of the bar that they are describing in this? Uh, this is a Los Angeles bar? It is. And I think it was either the Cuff or the Spike. Play the clip again and then I'll, I might be able to identify it. Yeah, see if we can figure it out. Because I was looking online earlier today and I could not find any record of it, but I remember going to it. Here we go. most embarrassing sexual encounter I ever had was a Los Angeles gay bar. I can't remember the name of the bar, but basically a leather bar um, near the end of my time at CalArts. So this is like 1984. I went there with friends. I don't drive and don't own a car. So I was basically, I got a ride to this bar with friends of mine. We started drinking. I got very, very drunk and decided that a particular guy in leather at the bar was super hot and super interesting. And we had been sort of like cruising each other. Um, so eventually I announced to my friends drunkenly that I was going home with this guy um, who they didn't know and who had never, you know, I had never seen before. And that Everything was okay. Don't worry. I'll like it. I'll I'll get a ride with him back to like your place tomorrow or whatever. So this guy takes me home and it is to some place I think in Silver Lake and he's sort of grilling me about who I am and he's like, "Oh, you're an artist. You're an artist, hun." And um he's like, "Oh, well, I'm an artist too. I'm I want to show you my work." And so we get back to his place where there's like his roommate is also there and is sort of like around. Um, and he starts showing me his work, which is like stained glass portraits of his Yorkies, <laughs> which, which like, so he's showing me his work and I'm like, and there's probably more drinking going on. I'm like, okay, this is not as hot as it was like half an hour ago, but here we are, you know. And and so he starts going into this whole thing about like, oh, have you ever been hypnotized? So the part of me that was bred on like um, mind control drugs and love potions from Batman is like perks up and is like, oh, okay, yeah. I'm like, let's, I haven't, let's see where it goes. Um, go ahead, like, go ahead. And he proceeds to hypnotize me I think it's like, oh, this is all going to be this kind of like sexual surrender. And um, and the point of his hypnosis is that he wants to find out what I'm what I really feel and that I really and whether or not I'm really in love with him. And, <laughs> and so at this point, like drunken me is like, uh, sure. I, I have subsequently learned, like, you, you can't really hypnotize drunk people. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but at this point, I'm like, okay, this is like my first big, like, leather date, 
right? Like I, wherever this goes is where it goes. So I think that he thought that he really put me under, but I have no way of actually knowing. So then the next phase is that he has me stripped down and puts me in the shower and washes me off and then proceeds to shave me from the neck down. Now, I have a lot of body hair, um, more so than I did at that point. But but still, even at age 24, I, I was, you know, I, I was a pretty hairy guy. And so he shaves me smooth um, from the neck down and then um, takes me out on his back patio and pisses on me on, like, the patio. Now, okay, this is, like, relatively hot at this point, but it's sort of coupled with, like, like the hypnosis part is all tied to his sort of insecurity so he's exerting this control, but there's like this weird emotional insecurity that's going on at the same time. And so I'm still like super drunk. And then it comes time to go to sleep and he sort of, you know, puts me back in the shower, washes me off again. It comes time to go to sleep. And his big idea is that he puts a hood on me and uh, puts me at the foot of his bed. Um, so that I'm going to sleep at the, like down on the floor at the foot of the bed while he sleeps in the bed. I think I have like mitts on my hands and the hood on my head. So, um, for those of you who have any experience with bondage at all, um, you were probably like screaming, no, 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 this is wrong. Like the last thing you do is put a drunk person in bond. Like, like I could easily have puked and aspirated into, you know, with the hood. I sort of was at that point of drunkenness where I would sort of fall asleep, but not really. I kept sort of like falling asleep and waking up, falling asleep and waking up. And somehow managed in the middle of the night to use the mitts and work the work the hood like off of my head so by the time the morning came um the the hood was off and then this being los angeles it's morning time and i don't have a car and don't drive and this is before cell phone time so i can't like call a cab or call my friends and 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 now having sobered up some all i want is like i'm done with this guy right he says well let me give you a ride back to your friend's place for him this has been like dream date he's gotten to do like every single thing that he's ever wanted to do and has uh, secured the admissions <laughs> the the true admissions of my love for him <laughs> so I'm trying to get him to drive me close enough back to my friend's place, but far enough away so that he doesn't actually know where they live. <laughs> so I'm trying to come up with an address that is somehow, like, you know, it, it's somewhere cutting the, dis the distance between those two. Meanwhile, he has decided this is, like, the relationship of his life, and that um, as I've described to him, 
um, my plan is to move up to San Francisco, you know, and at the during the middle of the summer to relocate now that I'm finishing school. And his whole idea is like, no, 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 don't do that. I'm working security at the Olympics. Stay down here and you can work on my security crew at the Olympics. Like there's a whole new, you know, this is this is like the whole new life that he's going to have. <laughs> and at this point, my whole concern is like, let me get out of the car. <laughs> I give him like the false phone number. Um, managed to get out of the car, and that was the last that we have ever seen of each other. Um, I did have, like, two weeks of full-body stubble and ingrown hairs to deal with <laughs> as as the memory of that, <laughs> of that uh, dream date. <laughs> So there was a situation, right, where I was like, finally, I'm going to get to do all of this, like, hot, kinky stuff that I've wanted to do. Like, here's, like, dominance and submission and, like, behavioral modification and all these things that are, that are like, super hot. And it was just, like, combined in this package with, like, the, the most sort of, like, irresponsible and um, wrongheaded person to deliver that message. And so it took me a long time to return to any of those things in a kink context. And even today, it's like my, I, I, my one rule is that like, you cannot shave me in a scene. Like, I, like, like I'm into someone like ordering me to get a specific kind of haircut or something like that, but body shaving. No, that's just not worth it. <laughs> That is that is that is a red line. Oh my, what a dream date. Indeed. What I love most about Nayland, I think that they have such a unique perspective on kink and all jokes aside, it's also a very harrowing story. If you were to tell it as a horror story, it would work in the same way. <laughs> yes. I love I love their willingness to look back on this as a teachable moment for themselves and to understand how something like this helped them learn how to negotiate kink in a more healthy way. The, uh, the hookup is always a potential disaster. Yeah. You're rolling the dice there. It's a potential, you know, pleasure as well, but yeah. a, a million things can go wrong. Mm -hmm. And that is, uh, you know, that's part of life. Yeah. Nayland is about, my age, a couple years older, but what I think comes with getting older, what comes with age is looking back at your experiences and allowing them to have happened. And unless they were, you know, life alteringly traumatic, that's one thing. Yeah. But if they were the result of someone who wasn't, you know, clear on their own boundaries and you didn't know yours, everything went awry you're able, hopefully, to look back on on that weird moment and think, you know, well, that was potentially really bad, but also, in the end, I can see it now and see that it's just part of the absurdity of, of living. Right. 
and also kind of part of the queer experience at that time. Like there wasn't the negotiation process of messaging and looking at a profile and reading somebody's descriptions. That's how it works, by the way. If I know that you don't use the apps, but there are all of these sections where people can describe themselves. And of course, they're seeing themselves in the most optimistic light, you know, when they actually could be sociopaths. <laughs> yes, they could be. Um, my understanding of the leather world is that those negotiations uh, in one form or another have always existed. Yeah. Uh, but again, you know, it comes down to two people or however many people are involved. Yeah. Everyone explaining their desires mm -hmm. in a way that is respected by the other person or people in the in the room. Yeah. I think that this leather guy that Nayland picked up, he might have assumed that because Nayland was there, that Nayland was already kind of signed up for a leather bondage type experience um who, who knows what that dude was thinking you know? <laughs> but uh i do want to just describe this bar because i'm pretty sure it's the one i'm thinking of which is no longer there of course and it has since been turned into a hipster bar but it was open when i first moved to la and it was in silver lake um on silver lake boulevard just down the street from casita del campo but um what was unique about the space was that it was, well, disgusting. It was like, <laughs> hadn't been cleaned in years. You could tell it was like a throwback to the 70s and the leather scene. Yeah. It had been untouched since the, the 70s. Grimy. But one, one unique <laughs> thing about it I'll never forget is that along the back wall, there was an elevated platform with a railing that people could go and stand and drink their, their drinks and cruise you know the rest of the room and have a really good view of the rest of the crowd and right. and one thing i realized after going there for a while was that the platform was at exactly the right height so that anyone standing on the ground floor their face would be right at the same level of the, the crotch of the people who were standing on the platform so i was like <laughs> at some point i was like oh that that's why that platform is there um, <laughs> for spontaneous oral sex opportunities. The architecture of queer spaces. <laughs> yes. Uh, it was, It was. you know, I loved it just for the reason that I'm sure a lot of gay men loved it, which is that it had a kind of a history and it did sort of send you back to a more simple time. Of course, this was still in the days before apps, so there was a necessity of going out. And I I liked it just because it did sort of offer a different uh, brand of, of cruising. And it was one of those places in LA that you would go after hours, you know. Um, <laughs> You're talking to the person who goes to bed at nine. So, yeah. <laughs> so, it, yeah, any listener who can verify the name of that bar, I would love to uh, hear from you. Um, all right, we're 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 coming up on our last clip, which is actually a montage of different moments from four different people from the season. And this is what I like to call my masturbation montage. And I'm not sure if, if listeners know this or not, but, you know, this whole Fruit Bowl project is in preparation for a feature film that is a feature documentary about queer sex. And this next montage is a good example of what I have every intention of doing, which is sort of connecting the dots between 
different interviews and sort of showing similarities between people that you may not have assumed would have anything in common. Um, And I like to also feature this montage because the people who are interviewed kind of fall outside of the gay cis male experience. I'm so honored that all of these people who are featured in this montage agreed to let me interview them because I love hearing their perspectives. And uh, we can talk more about what they're saying um, when we listen to the montage. So here we go. I had a teddy bear. I still have this teddy bear that I've had since I was born. This teddy bear is 35 years old. And this teddy bear's nose used to have fuzz on it until I got to Teddy. Teddy bear is named Teddy. I learned how to masturbate on on my teddy bear, you know? Like, I used it as a tool for pleasure. Um, And, you know, therapy and all those fun things that your teddy bears are good for. I definitely also masturbated. I mean, I think that I figured that out at a young age. (laughs) I think I was five. And um, I remember, uh, I think I was sitting at the kitchen table trying to do homework, and I didn't want to do it anymore. (laughs) So I just went on the couch in, like, the living room. I didn't even know that I wasn't, like, you know, probably that's, like, private time or something. It wasn't even a thought in my head. But I remember just, like, masturbating on the couch. Um, I don't even, I don't remember knowing how I knew that, though. So that's interesting. I'm like, how did I figure it out? I don't know. <laughs> I think that I somehow figured out, like, where it felt good and, like, just ran with it. Um, and I think that that's where um, my fantasizing at a young age started because I noticed that I was only fantasizing about women predominantly. <laughs> So that was like a big exploration for me. When I was little, I discovered what felt good really early on. And so I was just like rampantly coming all over the place, like everywhere all the time. I used to try to see how many times I could come before people got out of their car from the front yard to like walking up to the door. And which is ridiculous. Like, I didn't know what it was or what I was doing, but like, it was just happening all the time, all over the place. It was ridiculous. I know for sure it at least started in like preschool, but yeah, I have very clear memories of being over at a friend's house and we were playing with like, like My Little Ponies or something. And I was just kind of like rubbing up on the side of the bed. (laughs) And then once I was done, I was like, okay, I'm bored. Let's go do something else now. I just knew it would go up to a point where it felt really good and then I would suddenly like, I was just done. I had no idea what I was doing, I just knew that it felt really great and like I knew enough that I probably shouldn't do this around like a lot of people. I remember uh, like never really doing it around anybody like in my family or anything like that but yeah, it was pretty constant.
I discovered masturbating fairly early. Um, I think I was maybe like, God, like maybe four or five. Uh, and it was like dry humping beds and stuff like that, which was an issue for a hot minute. Um, but I didn't have any sort of understanding that it had anything to do with um, sex. It was just a sort of gratifying feeling. I just would hump like the side of my bed or I would hump like um, uh, the banister. Like I was just humping everything. Um, it was a real issue for a minute. I think the first time was... Um, I was hanging off the side of my bed, uh, and I was like holding onto the bed and reaching underneath the bed. So sort of straddling this, the corner of the mattress, uh, and it just felt crazy good. And so I was just there just wiggling around for a hot while, but I was also like the kind of kid that was just, um, like they would just take off their clothes at any given opportunity. So it was like not that bizarre. Uh, um, yeah, and I, I remember um, telling other kids of being like, you know, if you rub it, it feels insane. So this has to be before the first grade. Because I remember going into elementary school and probably by the second grade, I knew that you could not do that in front of other people. Like by the second grade, it was like a thing of being like, you cannot diddle your Skittle in, in front of other people. <laughs> and so I knew that. So it must have been, yeah, a preschool, first grade. The first time I ever masturbated to completion was somewhere between eight and ten. And it was to Taylor Dane's Tell It To My Heart. <laughs> That's what was on the radio. And I loved me some Taylor Dane, and I don't know, for some reason, I just got titillated that day and started humping a pillow and, like, kept going. And I was like, wow. And Tell It To My Heart was playing. So every time I hear that song, that is... All I think about is, like, the first time I ever actually masturbated to full orgasm. I mean, I didn't know what was going on. I just, whatever felt good, you know, and Taylor Dane helped me along. Thank you, Taylor Dane. <laughs> and just to let people know... Those voices belong to RC. That's episode eight. Jai from episode five. Anders from episode six. And then it was Isabella from episode nine. And Ade from episode 11. Dave, can you describe to the young ones who Taylor Dane is? Uh, she was really cool. She's still really cool. <laughs> <laughs> she... <laughs> <laughs> She's not dead. She's not dead. She's still she's still alive. Thank God. We need Taylor Dane in the world. Exactly. Still singing songs. God bless her. To delight anyone who cares to listen. Is she one of those divas who still play like gay pride parades and festivals? I love them. Oh yeah, for sure. And big, big voice. Big voice. Big personality. Late eighties uh pop singer. Tell it to my heart. It's a stone jam. To this day. Huge hit. You young people. 
<laughs> learn things about Taylor Dane. God damn it. <laughs> right. I was watching the video because I posted it on this episode's page on my website. And uh, yeah, she, the, the video is very smart because all it is is just Taylor and a white background. Her da- It's her dancing. Yeah. Singing and dancing. And it's, it's her just being Taylor Dane. And that's about all you need. <laughs> Commanding you yes. to tell it to her heart. <laughs> Uh, I love that Ade remembers the pop song that was playing. The first time he masturbated. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's fucking, that's a great fucking story, uh, by the way. Yeah. It's awesome. And, and just such a small little moment. I love those kinds of moments that I get to hear other people remember. Right. And, and I also love this montage because my discovery of masturbation was so boring and so late compared to all of these people. And I think about all my missed opportunities for orgasm early in life. Cause I didn't really figure it out until later. Listen, 23 is not that old, Dave. <laughs> but I didn't figure it out until my dad gave me a freaking pamphlet that described it. A book, like a little book. Yes. Like what, it, what is happening to my body? Yes. That's exactly what it was. What a good dad. I know. And it was even told from the perspective of a good Christian. Nice. It was a Christian pamphlet. Please, I grew up. I grew up evangelical, and they were always saying, "Don't touch yourself." That's the devil. I was like, "What the fuck? How are you supposed to do that? How are you supposed to not do that?" <laughs> Torture. Uh, well, I guess that's it for this season two wrap up. I really appreciate you being the guest. Thank you for allowing me to be here and for allowing me to give you no insights whatsoever. <laughs> Lots of comments, no deep thoughts. <laughs> what are you going to cook this weekend? Uh, it's going to be kind of hot in Los Angeles this weekend. And so I've already done my weekend's cooking. Yeah. Uh, yesterday, it's in the refrigerator waiting for us to eat it so that the oven does not have to come on. Mm-hmm. That's wise. Made some chicken meatballs. Mm. Oh my gosh, that yeah. sounds amazing. Well, I encourage everyone who's listening to check out Linoleum Knife. And can you give a shout out to your Patreon? Uh, It's patreon.com slash linoleum knife. Perfect. If you go to Patreon, you will hear Linoleum Knife and it won't cost you a penny. Uh, It's not not a thing like where you have to sign up for Patreon or any nonsense like that. Mm -hmm. It's just where you can go. Or you just go to, you know, Apple Podcasts or... Wherever the hell podcasts go. But in order to get your, your baking or the Linoleum Nights show, those are for subscribers only. Oh, you want you want extra? Yeah, you want extra, you're gonna pay. Yeah. <laughs> that's very we've, smart. We've created a we've created a product and we're selling it. And that's what's that's what's happening. I don't blame you. If I had time, I would do that too. Well, thanks again for for being the guest and um, we'll catch you next time. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this season of Fruit Bowl. You know, I've been doing this for a little over a year now. And in my first episode, I predicted that my first season would be a lot like the first season of Drag Race. And I was right. It was a little clunky. I was still trying to find the different options for the format. But I feel like this season I really found a groove. So I just want to take this opportunity to really thank you for listening and sticking with me while I kind of figure things out. You may not know this, but 
Apple actually offers podcasters the ability to really dig into granular data when it comes to listener numbers for not only a podcast, but also the individual episodes. You can see which episodes are the most popular. You can also find out at what point in each episode people stop listening. And for a while there, I would check it every week. I got a little bit obsessive about it. And I started to ask myself, well, why don't I have more listeners? And why didn't people like this episode over this other one? And why don't I have more listeners? And the whole thing became kind of depressing and also demotivating, which is not a good thing when you're producing a passion project. I don't really know how my numbers compare to other people's. And frankly, I don't want to know. I'm actually not doing this for numbers. Um, I'm doing it because I think that shedding light on queer coming of age is really important. I'm tired of the subject being glossed over, and I'm tired of queer people being judged for our sexuality and our sexual practices. And I know that everyone who has agreed to be interviewed for Fruit Bowl has shown me a great deal of trust with their stories, and I take that responsibility very, very seriously. So I deleted that webpage bookmark, and I no longer check the analytics for Fruit Bowl. And I have to say, I'm a much more happy person for it. I love making Fruit Bowl, and I have every intention of continuing to do it. So having said that, if you could just take five minutes and rate and review Fruit Bowl on Apple Podcasts, I would really appreciate that. If you wanted to help out financially, you could help support Fruit Bowl by Patreon or even through my fiscal partnership with Northwest Film Forum if you're interested in making a larger tax-deductible donation. But really, more than anything, if you could just tell a friend, I would really appreciate it because honestly, personal recommendations are really the way that podcasts get traction. Before I start work on episodes for season three, I am just going to finish videos for the last three episodes of this second season. I will also be giving the website a little polish. And then come September, I'll start producing the new episodes and hopefully I'll post 12 more episodes by the end of the year. All I ask is that you just please be patient. I am doing this all by myself right now while also having a full-time editing gig, so it's just taking me a little bit longer to turn out episodes than I would like. Sadly, the one person who was helping me produce the show, Tom, recently moved to Palm Springs with his partner. So I would like to just take this opportunity to thank Tom for helping me out in the first year of producing Fruit Bowl and for always supporting me and coming through for me. I really appreciate it, and I wish him and his partner all the best. Stay safe, wear a mask, and we will meet again in September. Bye now. Bye now.